Hey friends, I'm back for another story. The Women of the Bible Speak by Shannon Brim. And it's about Hagar. Of all the women we are looking at in the pages of this book, Hagar is the only non-free person. Many Bible translations define her status as a maidservant which makes her sound like someone who showed up to do semi-regular cleaning. While the language in Genesis 16 suggests she is a trusted servant of Sarah's, by Genesis 21, the language shifts to indicate that Hagar is by then viewed as no more than a slave. She was not free to come and go as she pleased, but was the property of her owner, Sarah. This is a dominant feature of Hagar's life and the one that colors everything else we know about her and her situation. The Bible tells us that Hagar is an Egyptian. She makes sense that Sarah might have acquired her when she and Abraham lived in Egypt during the time of famine described in Genesis 12:10 when she and Abraham practiced their deception on Pharaoh by telling him that she was Abraham's sister not his wife it's possible Abraham and Sarah were figures of some wealth and power by the time of their surrender in Egypt after all most people traveling to Egypt probably weren't weren't worried about what they would tell Pharaoh, as common people didn't usually come in contact with royalty. However, Genesis twelve fifteen tells us it is Sarah's great presence that attracts the high level attention. A person with disposable wealth might well have acquired slaves in Egypt which he would then have transported with him back to Canaan. And Hagar did not appear to be just any slave hired to, to, to the camels. Hired to attend to the camels and cook. She was the personal attendant of Abraham, Abraham's wife, Sarah. The facts we know of Hagar's life are few and simple. She was offered to Abraham as a couple combine of Sarah as a servant Hagar Hagar could not have asked her opinion on the matter she bore Abraham's firstborn son Eshmael was then entangled in a combative relationship with Sarah compelled to leave not once but twice first while pregnant again later for good after Sarah's son was born these short, brutal facts made it hard not to feel compassion for her. But Hagar's life and its impact impact is so much larger than what happened to her in the page of Genesis. Her story goes on. Paul himself in, in Galatians shows her life, illustrates important lessons for Christians. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken 
figuratively, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount, Mount Sai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Galatians. Paul draws a simple but a powerful equation. Hagar and his son represent a condition of bondage, and Sarah and her son represent freedom. For Paul, Christianity means freedom. Observing the Jewish law means bondage. The law was good, but it had no power to free the human race from slavery of sin. It was in the covenant promise which flowed through Sarah and Isaac that brought freedom through Christ. Here Paul is talking to Gentile Christians who have converted to Christ, but who question whether they must also observe Christian law, I mean Jewish law, excuse me. What are you doing, Paul says? You are already have everything you need for salvation and you don't need to be adding more burden to yourself paul rebukes some who inflirted the church in agalia arguing that members need only trust in christ but also keep all the old jewish laws and traditions he nudges new believers to look deeper than the literal meaning of the text to discover the spiritual truths inside it in the process of doing that, Hagar becomes a symbol. For Christians who were deeply in love with Jesus and seen him everywhere, this kind of symbolic reading became a natural way to see Christ in the pages of the Bible. In the first Corinthians, Paul talks about the miraculous rock from which the Hebrew people drank when in the wilderness. All the all ate the same spiritual food, he says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians For these early Christians, Christ and his truth appeared symbolically everywhere in the scriptures. Suddenly, the pages of the Bible were eliminated. Christians continued to read the scriptures this way, through the generations, especially the Hagar story in later Christian writings, Hagar came to mean bondage not just to the law, but to the entire full sinful condition of humanity, the city of this world. The un unredeemed were the children of Hagar, exiled from the body of Christ and from heaven itself. In all these symbolic readings, it is easy to lose sight of Hagar, the person, because she was anything else. Hagar was a person, a vulnerable woman without any real protection, protect, without any real protectors in the world, an enslaved woman who was never given any choices, a mother who wanted life and happiness for her son. If we can separate Hagar from the layers of symbolism, Heaped on her by later generations, we can recover some sense of who she was and what she might have said to us today. We met Hagar in two incidents. They both involved her mistress, Sarah. God had promised children to Abraham, but Sarah had given him none. That's when Sarah hatched her plan to offer Hagar as Abraham's combine. 
in hope of her providing him a legal heir. After Hagar became pregnant, her relationship with Sarah changed. We learn when Hagar learned she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The Hebrew here is a and in medic as the English, but it appears Hagar holds Sarah in a lower regard because while she herself is fertile, her mistress mistress remains burdened. Hagar's change of attitude is understandable. After all, the likelihood that she wasn't consulted about being a concubine in the first place, just as she wasn't consulted by being purchased by Sarah and Abraham, her life and her body were not her own. Being pregnant with a master's child was her first opportunity for a kind of freedom. Suddenly, she was not just disposable property. She had worth. But that worth was not because of who she was, but it was because of the child inside of her. It must have been bittersweet to realize that finally she would be a person of value, but that value would be attached to her child, not to her. Still, any value was better than no value. Hagar must well have assumed from then on things would be different. She might have assumed that the sort of labor she was doing before she could no longer be required of the woman bearing the master's child. And Sarah, who was, who so could not bear the master's child, might have resented for it no matter what Hagar did. Again and again, the Bible represents with the struggle of infertility. We will see this drama play itself out again in Rachel and Leah and in Hannah. For the women of the Bible, fertility meant more than just a love of a child. It meant more just a, a way for a woman to gain security and status in the world. Fertility was often viewed as a divine favor itself. Some believed to bear a child was to wear a mark of God's love and to be barren. There was therefore a mark of God's displeasure. But it's important to know from the moment God created Eve, she was a person of value because she is created in his very, his very image. In our Heavenly Father's eyes, as we as women are treat, treasured and honored woefully, and apart from the gift of motherhood, much more on Ra much more on Rachel, Leah, and Hannah in the chapters ahead. Did Hagar show Sarah compassion as she suffered this agony and humiliation? We see no indication that there was any tenderness in their relationship or any mutual caring. Whatever bond they did have was probably raptured by Hagar's pregnancy. Sarah mistreated the pregnant Hagar, and Hagar did the sensible thing. She ran away. It wasn't, it wasn't just herself that she looked after, but she, but also her unborn child. And Abraham made it clear that she was, he was unwilling to protect her, even if she was pregnant with his child. So Hagar ran, ran to the wilderness and probably hoping to find some solution there or another path in life or some kind of escape. What she found instead was the angel of the Lord. Oh, hold on, I'm getting to the pages. Pages are sticking. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near 
a spring in the desert. It was the spring that beside the road to Sh to Shar. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you came from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. But first thing to note here, that if the angel of the Lord asks you where you're going, it's a sure bet he already knows. But God always gives us an opportunity to be honest with him. Think about the first question God asked in the Bible. Adam, where are you? In much the same way, the angel here asked Hagar, inviting her to be honest, which was, which she was, but God's answer was not an easy one. God told her to go back to give up her hard-won won freedom. How much Hagar must have wanted to shout, no, the thought of going back must have been unbearable. And then came the difficult words none of us ever want to hear, humble yourself. What a seemingly impossible, painful thing God was asking of her. This is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. And this is a mighty angel. Doesn't come to a king or a priest, but to a pregnant slave girl who is alone and covering in fear in the wilderness. She had no defender or encourager in this world, yet the God of heaven wanted Hagar to know that he saw and heard her in her distress. The angel tells her that the Lord had heard of her misery. This must have been astonishing news for more than one reason. For one thing, Hagar was not of Abraham's family. She was Egyptian, not even from Abraham's home of Ur. She probably didn't even speak the language at all that well. And there's a good chance she did not worship the strange, strange singular God they worshipped. They, they would, why would that God care about her? But he came to her in her fear and her desolation. He saw her. So, who was it Hagar saw exactly? After the angel of the Lord told her to go back to Sarah, he delivered a promise. He gave her a message using words for a Christian, echoed the words spoken by another much later angel you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son you shall name him Ishmael Ishmael but when the visitation was done what did Hagar say as far as she was concerned she had a direct and meditative version of God himself she gave she even gave God a name the first person in the Bible to do so she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her you are the God who sees me for she said I have now seen the one who sees me she said that the one who appeared to her was El Eroya which means literally the God of seen God has seen her and she had seen God Hagar had perfectly seen and known think about what that must have meant for an enslaved woman. How many eyes had looked right past her or through her in life? Visitors to Abraham's tent, people in the slave market of Egypt. She would have no more than been furniture to them, something people glanced at and then away from. She was used to being unseen, but this God 
was not like that. God looked right at her for the first time in her life. Hagar was seen. An experience like that might have made possible for her to go back to Sarah. Once you have looked in the eyes of God and seen him looking back at you, even the impossible seemed doable. In the passage just before this one, God appears to Abraham and seals his covenant with him. The Bible tells us that God came to him to him in a vision and that Abraham heard the voice of the Lord. The covenant was sealed, but in Hagar's case, God appeared and offered his love and compassion. He gave her what she likely 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 wanted and needed most, someone to see her as she truly was. The knowledge of God stays with Hagar in her second trial too, a time when the power of his words must have served as some comfort when things went from bad to worse. After Sarah was finally granted her child, Isaac was three years old. Hagar was sent away in a more formal sense. The Bible's language suggesting a deliberate action that may have stripped away Hagar's identity, her inheritance, and likely her hope. It did her no good that she was the mother of Abraham's firstborn son. Once again, the father of her child failed to defend her. Abraham had God's assurance that Hagar and Shemel would be fine, but the Bible does not tell us if he shared that assurance with Hagar. She was sent off into the punishing desert with the bare minimum of supplies and wasn't enough to sustain the two of them. Hagar was quickly out of options. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there and began to sob. In one of the most heart-rending passages in Scripture, Hagar acknowledges that watching her son's death will be the final grief she could not bear. She despaired. Everyone had abandoned her, and she no longer could keep her son saved from the world that no one had no one had use for a slave slave woman's son many of us are fortunate enough to live in a world where we don't have to fear every day for our children's lives or safety we tell ourselves that we have made them safe at at the trappings of middle class life can keep them safe if we are privileged enough we roll them in good schools Take them to good doctors. Keep a close eye on their activities. All too often, though, we fail to consider the anguish of women, of mothers, excuse me, who can't do these things for their children, for the poor and downtrodden in this world. These basic safeguards are often untenable. For those mothers whose children face hatred and discrimination, Safety is often impossible to guarantee, and the, the truth is, all of us, all of us are all in one terrible, unimaginable away from being in Hagar's shoes. But God was not done with Hagar. All right, my husband is going to be reading the rest of this chapter. Here he is. Uh, hello, good morning everyone. Let's see where we're at here. Uh, but God was not done with Hagar. 
Sorry about that. Something crawling on me. Uh, okay. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. That's in Genesis 21. God reached into Hagar's despair and sent an angel to speak gentle and comforting words to her. The angel said to her, the words that angels say again and again, again and again in the Bible, do not fear. These words are said by an angel for the first time in the Bible when they are said to Hagar. The same words an angel says to Zechariah and to Mary, to Joshua, and to the women in Jesus, at Jesus' tomb. They are the words God himself speaks to Abraham when he says, Do not be afraid. I am your shield and will be your exceedingly great reward. Hagar is addressed in the same words that God uses for Abraham because this is the God who truly sees and who recognizes no distinction between wealthy patriots and sorrowful slaves. Patriarch. Okay. The God who sees is the God who sees not with his eyes of the world, but with the eyes of heaven. How might Hagar and Sarah's stories have been different in their relationship, had their relationship been different? If they had found a way to connect with each other, to forgive each other, and understand each other's grief, what would have changed? What would have been the same? It could be that all that would have been necessary for Hagar to have reached out to her mistress with compassion and generosity, even if Sarah showed her none. Kindness to someone who has been unkind is hard to us. But what about kindness to someone who has been unjust to us for years and years? Or kindness to someone who has oppressed us? That's where the hard starts to seem impossible. But if Hagar found a way to extend that hand, then Sarah might not have been, might not have driven her away. Alternatively, if Sarah had been willing to overlook Hagar's disrespect and recognize how insecure she felt, perhaps she could have found commonalities between both of them. Both women were valued by God, who cherished and understood them. What if they had reflected their covenant with God by entering into the covenant with each other? It's possible that in a world like that, Ishmael and Isaac could have grown up together. What would, it have, what would it have looked like in a world in which the ancestors of the Jews and the ancestors of the Arabs had grown up arm in arm as beloved brothers who could not bear to be separated? It isn't just human hearts that might have been different then, but a map of the world. Who knows what future maps our hearts can rewrite if we can somehow find a way to can show compassion for one another. Alright, that's the end of... So friends, that's the end of the um, Hagar. Next, we're going to be talking about uh, Rachel and Leah. Um, I hope this chapter that we had just read about Hagar got you thinking more about God and how this is how I thought about it when I was reading it I felt like well I think I felt that way sometimes 
I felt like people didn't really see me for who I was. They tend to ignore me or interrupt me or and I don't think people do that intentionally. But unfortunately, I guess I never felt seen. I never felt heard. So I never, when God put it on my heart to do podcasting, I'm going to be honest, I didn't think I was worthy to do it. You know, I was like, what if I mess up? What if I'm not good enough? Um, I'm not good with editing. You know, editing is real big. You know, because what are we looking for? We're looking for perfection. So if you think about it, that's why editing is there. Because people are looking for perfection. We're craving perfection because that's what it's supposed to have been like. If sin did not come into the world, that's what we're supposed to have had. And I'm just very thankful for all my listeners that keep coming back. Um, I don't take none of y'all for granted. And y'all encourage me by listening, listening, um, you know, to my podcast. That is encouragement within itself. And I hope y'all are having a great and a blessed day. And um, I will talk to y'all later, friends. Bye.